Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. We got to our patrol area and we'd been into the into patrol for about an hour and we're up around about 8,000 feet. And the nose operator said, hey, Skipper, I can see something on the horizon. It's black and I'm not sure. So we did a slow descent towards this and it turned out to be a submarine on the surface. So we actually checked all our briefing notes and whatever and there was nothing which suggested that there was a submarine out of action perhaps steaming into Pearl Harbor because it had some unserviceability. So we decided that this, this guy was fair game. The voice there of Wing Commander retired and QAM volunteer Phil Andrews narrating an incident that he was involved in some years ago while on exercises with the RAAF in a Lockheed Neptune. I'll let you hear the rest of that story in a few minutes, as well as some others from retired Air Force officers who also served in Neptunes. Hello and welcome to this episode of Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra. This is the second part of a two-part series featuring the restoration and some of the service history of QAM's Lockheed Neptune 277. My name is Gary Hills. I am a QAM volunteer and I am delighted to be your host for this episode. Now in part one of our Lockheed Neptune feature, in case you missed it, I spoke with three of the volunteers in the restoration team, Keith Richardson, Peter Harrington and Ian Edwardson. Sterling chaps, each one. In this episode, you will hear from former RAAF pilot and then airline captain Morris Ritchie, Wing Commander retired Phil Andrews, Air Electronics Officer, and Wing Commander retired... Dave Charles, Navigator. Now, I wanted to get a sense for what this aircraft did, how it performed, and something of what it was like to serve in. And I was not disappointed. So let's start with Phil Andrews and Dave Charles, who sat down with me on a Tuesday recently in Hangar 2 at QAM. The lawnmowers were operating again, so you'll hear a bit of that too. G'day, Phil. G'day, Gary. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for talking to me today. And Dave, g'day. Yeah, likewise. Okay, so let's start with you, Phil. Um, what do you do on the restoration project itself? What's your role on the team? I'm not very technical when it comes to nuts and bolts and <laughs> screwdrivers and things, so I just do what I'm asked to do to help out. <laughs> well, every team needs people like that, and, and in fact, that's what I do on the Spitfire too. But uh, it's, uh, it's a great project to be together as, as a team working on, isn't it, something like this, particularly such a significant project. So what was your experience with 277 or with Neptunes in general? Well, I'd first joined 10 Squadron in the year that the aircraft were actually delivered off the Lockheed production line. And so uh, they were still brand new and, and, and uh, very secret back in those days. So, so that was 1962? 1962. I arrived in the squadron in October 62. Okay. 
So yes, I brand new signaller and uh, we had to undergo a conversion training course onto the aircraft and its equipment. So most of the time, initially, we were either on communications or loading stores down the back for the Sonderboy tubes and all that sort of stuff. So your trade or your profession was a signalman, is that right? Well, initially signaller, that was the course that we did, but in, uh, after a couple of years, they introduced a new category of air electronics officer, and those of us that were still senior NCOs at that stage were commissioned on the 1st of December 1964. Okay. So by that time, of course, we'd completed a lot of training on the, on the more sensitive equipment, and we were uh, classified as operational crew. So how many years would you have served on the Neptunes? In terms of years, I had two postings to 10 Squadron of about four years each, and I accrued f around 4,000 hours on the aircraft yeah. itself. Now, you must have taken part in a number of uh, significant exercises as well as search and rescue and various things. Uh, does, does one of those experiences stand out in your memory? Yes. Um, the longest flight that I ever had in a and Neptune was 19 hours and it was a search and rescue mission. Okay. Uh, it was to do with a lost fisherman off the coast of, uh, around about the Mackay area as I recall um, and the, the weather situation wasn't conducive to, to searching anyway but yeah about 19 hours was what we did. And did you find him? I think we did in due course, but I think the, it was a tragic uh, find. Now, I've had a bit of a wander through the, the uh, interior of the Neptune. The guys showed me through there, and I, I cannot imagine being in there for 19 hours, but I know that's what you did. Yes. And uh, so where was your station in, in the actual aircraft? I could have manned any one of five stations, to, which were uh, operated by the air electronic officers. Uh, from Jez to Julie, ECM, communications, and in the rear end of the aircraft, uh, loading the stores. Um, I had a specialist category of the chief cook for the crew. <laughs> now, I did miss the opportunity to quiz Phil at the time about two technical terms that you just heard him use. He said he was stationed at that time in the aircraft at the Jez and Julie stations. Jez and Julie were the names applied to the submarine detecting listening devices, the Sonoboys, the Jezebel and the Julie. The Jezebel is the name given to the passive Sonoboys, dropped in the water with a microphone extended from a cable for listening to the sounds of submerged submarines. The name apparently comes from Queen Jezebel, from the Bible, who listened at keyholes and betrayed others. The Jezebel was a betrayer. Julie, on the other hand, was the name given to the active Sonoboy, which had a pinger, so it sent out a sound and then listened for reflected sound off the metal hull of a submerged vessel. Now it seems that the boy was given that code name because the development team frequented a popular, shall we say, establishment 
After Hours, where one Julie Gibson performed. Now, they named it Julie because Julie makes passive boys active. Hey, I'm just reporting what has been described to me. Feel free to add a comment in the Mac One hangar if I've managed to get that wrong. Uh, by the way, you'll see photos and videos from this episode there also in the Mac One hangar. Now back to Phil Andrews and then on to Dave Charles. I had a specialist category of the chief cook for the crew. <laughs> so you got to stand up for a while at some point in the process anyway. Um, and what, what do you have a, how do you feel about the Neptune? Was it, what was it like to be uh, part of uh, serving in the Neptunes? The Neptune, to my mind, uh, was a wonderful aeroplane. I suppose I'm biased to some extent because it was really the only aircraft that I served actively on. Uh, I reached a point in my service career where somebody said, your flying days are over, son, you're going to fly a desk from here on. Okay. Yeah. I can give you one story Please. of operational story. Please. We were on an ANZUS exercise operating out of Hawaii and our crew was the last crew on this particular uh, exercise. It was a daytime sortie. We had uh, eight-eighths blue sky, next to no uh, swell. So we got to our patrol area and the crew decided that uh, we'll use the Mark I eyeball as the primary search aid. So now for our listeners, what does that mean? The Mark I eyeball is the one that's in your head. <laughs> your eyeballs, okay. That's the technical term for your eyeballs, got it? Sorry, go on. Yes. So we got to our patrol area and we'd been into the into patrol for about an hour and we we're up around about 8,000 feet. And the nose operator said, hey, Skipper, I can see something on the horizon. It's black and I'm not sure. So we did a slow descent towards this and it turned out to be a submarine on the surface. So we actually checked all our briefing notes and whatever and there was nothing which suggested that there was a submarine out of action perhaps steaming into Pearl Harbor because it had some unserviceability. So we decided that this this guy was fair game so we carried out a mock attack on him, bomb bays open and, and drop a series of practice depth charges which was the signal that you've just been attacked with a homing torpedo. So. We were feeling pretty happy with ourselves. We got back to the base and uh, after clearing the aircraft, we went to the operations room and this stony-faced operations officer emerged from the back somewhere and he looked at us all and he said, are you gentlemen trying to restart the war in the Pacific? That submarine you attacked is a Japanese self-defense force on a submarine on a, on a goodwill visit to Pearl Harbor and the skipper's not real happy with the welcome that he's received. So we thought, hello, here comes the diplomatic incident. So fortunately our skipper was the CR of the squadron and he, he was allocated a car. He said, right, some of you guys get some of the beer that we, we brought over. Hot foot it down to Pearl Harbor, so meet this submarine when he comes in. Explain the the mishap and uh, we call that VB diplomacy and it's survived. <laughs> yes, apparently because we didn't go to war with anyone that year, so it must have worked. <laughs> Phil, thank you mate, that's fantastic. I appreciate that. 
you asked about significant operations that we did. Yeah. And the one that sticks in my mind is the escort of the of HMAS Sydney and the Melbourne on their first trip to Vietnam. Okay, our two aircraft carriers. Yes. Uh, one was a, by then a troop transport, but the other was a, a functional anti-submarine aircraft carrier operating uh, operating uh, Gannets and uh, Wessex helicopter. And uh, we were concerned about some Russian submarines that belonged to Indonesia. Uh, they were Whiskey-class submarines, which was a derivative of the German U-boat of World War II. And we were concerned that they might have a crack at, at the uh, ships. So we were carrying live weapons, like homing torpedoes and depth charges. Um, fortunately, we didn't need to use any of them or create an, another international incident. But uh, it, was, it was quite interesting. And uh, we flew the... Uh, <coughs> We flew almost back-to-back -back sorties towards the end because the CO wanted to do the final handoff uh, as the ships neared Vung Tau. And so we, we flew out of, um, of uh, Sangley Point in the Philippines and did a couple of sorties from there and then recovered into uh, Sangley spent eight hours on the ground and then took off on the final sortie from which we recovered into Singapore. So that was a very interesting, uh, very interesting time. But we also did plenty of search and rescue looking for people who had a, there was a class of people in North Queensland had a um, tendency to want to sail iron bedsteads across the Pacific or do weird things like that and there was a, also a, a former medical student called Tarzan Fomenko who used to periodically go bush in North Queensland and, and be gone for several months and some little old lady would ring up and say whatever happened to that nice young Tarzan Fomenko and off we'd be out looking for a guy who didn't want to be found for hours and hours at a time so yeah so your experience with the Neptunes, did you, how would you describe them to operate in and serve in? Oh, it was a wonderful aeroplane to operate in. The only thing that you regretted was that the aeroplane wasn't pressurised or air-conditioned. So if, uh, if you were out in hot weather, low over the water for tactical reasons, yeah. with all the uh, valve-driven electronics, generated a lot of heat and there was one particular day when we were out on off Sydney in one of the heat waves flying around at about 2,000 feet and uh, I was at the tactical coordinator's position, the radar, and I was writing on the radar screen with a Chinagraph pencil and the Chinagraph was just melting and running down the screen and uh, I was explaining that to a fellow and his young son here one day and I said, it was so hot that we ran out of water and we ran out of fruit juice. And this kid's eyes lit up and he said, gee, mister, did you have fruit juice back then? I didn't 
I didn't tell him it was warm golden circle pineapple juice in a can. <laughs> so Dave, what's your role on the restoration team? Well, I started out um, doing general uh, cleaning and so on, but then got around to replacing a lot of the labelling in the aeroplane which has deteriorated. Yes. So be using uh, various computer programs uh, got involved in making making those sorts of labels and this is the latest batch uh, <coughs> which I've just had printed locally. Okay so we've got fuel, we've got uh, fuel, brake lift, uh, uh, drain, yeah. okay and I've seen the labeling in the Bombay, was that you doing that because that is fantastic, all that detail. Well <laughs> until about uh, January, February last year, I was spending a lot of time in the Bombay scraping old paint, which was so thick it was like crocodile skin. And finally, I, I went to uh, uh, to the rest of the team and said, "Look, I'm going to be 80 this year. That was last year." Um, I said, at the rate we're going, I'll still be scraping paint when I'm 100, and I don't want to be doing that. So what I proposed was to um, hire a sandblaster to, um, to do the job. And we, we had it sandblasted in two days, but we had to take out all of the, all of the plumbing in order to do it. And then we had to remake all the labels. So we went through that process and it was like a big IKEA project you know some assembly required uh, but it was it was repainted and it's probably now the the cleanest uh, Neptune Bombay in Australia. <laughs> so well it's, it, it, it's fantastic mate it's pristine it looks very, as though it's just out of the factory. I'm very happy with the way that turned out. Okay. And uh, so that's your main role now on the yeah. on the team? Yeah. Okay. And the fun we had trying to replace that plumbing and <laughs> relocating where it all went after. <laughs> I know, I'm going to take a photograph for our listeners because it's very intricate, isn't it? When you say plumbing, there's an awful lot of it and it's very tiny and fiddly and uh, you must have, what, did you take photographs? Do you have schematics? Yeah. How did you... We had lots of photographs. Yeah, okay. So all of this goes on here on a Tuesday and a Wednesday uh, at the museum. But thank you for what you're doing and congratulations on this because if somebody doesn't do this, these aircraft will be lost and forgotten and that would be an awful shame. So thank you very much for what you do and thank you for talking to me today. And finally, I caught up with Morris Ritchie. Now, I caught up with Morris on the phone. So this is the first telephone conversation for the Mac One podcast. I hope that the, uh, the quality of the sound is not distracting because the conversation was absolutely fascinating. So, Morris, you're a QAM volunteer and tour guide. Uh, where are you from and what's your background in aviation? All right, Gary. Um, well, I've been living in uh, Brisbane for several years, uh, since the early 80s, and uh, my background is uh, Air Force, uh, flying Neptunes and P-3 Orions, and then moved on to airlines, and I retired five years ago after flying uh, Boeing 777s. 
Okay, wow, there's some stories to tell there. Okay, and you're one of our tour guides, so if somebody wants to come in and, and meet with you, what days are you normally uh, at QAM? Uh, Wednesday is my normal day for touring there, okay? Okay. Well, look, I'm really keen to hear some of your recollections and stories about the Neptunes, but we've been talking to the guys who are on the restoration team, and I've talked to some others who have had some experience in aircrew, you're, you're my first pilot, so uh, I'm really, I've been really looking forward to talking to you. What, what was, uh, how, how long, how many hours did you have in the Neptunes? Uh, I was just checking my lookbook uh, recently, and uh, I flew 2,200 2, hours on the Neptunes before okay. moving on to Adelaide and flying the P3s. Okay, and you, so you were based at uh, Townsville at Number 10 Squadron? That's correct. My first flight up there was... Uh, 10th of January, 1974. 74. Okay, so that's not long before the the Neptunes were retired, is it? They only had a few years left, I think, at that stage. That's correct. There was uh, I was with them for the last four years of service. Okay, so what was the Neptune like to fly? Just just describe that for us, to, for us non-pilots, for us civilians. Well, Gary, uh, considering it was my first large aircraft after getting my wings, uh, it was initially very daunting and, and exciting. Um, big aeroplane, big engines, not easy to start in the tropics. Mm. Um, but the actual flying of the aircraft was very nice, although there used to be jokes that you could tell a captain by the huge uh, biceps in his left arm because <laughs> he's having to pull it around manually. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, the hydraulics uh, was fairly new for that type of aircraft at the end of the Second World War with um, 3,000 PSI. could have been one of the first to actually have that. But that was mostly restricted to the uh, tailplane section of the aircraft. The rest was all manual. And you always flew with a co-pilot, is that right? Or well, sometimes I was the co-pilot, yes. There are two pilots. Yep. Now, a lot of our visitors are fascinated by the fact that it was a propeller-driven aircraft with a couple of jets. Um, you obviously operated the jets on takeoff, is that correct? That's correct. Uh, we always had the jets running for takeoff and also um, at idle for landing, uh, just in case of a, a sudden unexpected uh, engine failure on one of the uh, reciprocating engines, the piston engines. Did you ever have an engine failure? Oh, many. <laughs> ah, many. <laughs> I learned more about engine failures on the Neptune than all the other aircraft I flew later. So how big a deal is it for one of those engines to go out in flight? Well, it depended how bad it was. Sometimes we just had to shut an engine down because of uh, lack of oil pressure, for instance. Uh, another time uh, during a uh, an exercise off Rockhampton, uh, we dropped a uh, piston um, intake valve through the engine that shot through the fuselage of the aircraft, taking mm. out the hydraulics, oh, almost taking out the navigator as well. So uh, that was a big deal because the jet engines needed hydraulics to open their doors at the front of the pods. Oh, I see. Wow. Okay. Um, that sounds like far too much excitement for somebody like me. Um, the, did you ever feel that it was an unsafe or unreliable aircraft? Not unsafe, Gary. Um I guess the engines were the most unreliable part of the uh, of the uh, system. Um, we had a lot of trouble with, uh, I remember, spark plugs um, because 18 cylinders, there's a lot of spark plugs there. Mm. And uh, at that stage, we were getting reconditioned uh, spark plugs 
who were being reconditioned by, uh, I believe it was an ANSAC captain working out of his garage down in Melbourne. You're kidding. No, no, no. Uh, they, they met the specs that the RWF required, but uh, they didn't work very well in service. And, and I really always felt sorry for the Sumpies, the engine fitters who would have to be changing spark plugs on a really hot engine mm. in the middle of the day in Townsville. So those guys... Uh, earned a lot of my respect. Anyway, um, that problem was solved when we started using brand new spark plugs. So that was just one one instance I can remember. And what areas did you operate in? Was it all around the, the Pacific? Um, not uh, too far afield. We would do flights as far as Butterworth in Malaysia via Darwin. Um, we'd also go out to the Cocos Islands via Lemons uh, in Western Australia. Uh, we mostly concentrated on the northern part of Australia. We'd do our coastal surveillance from Townsville all the way to Darwin, around to Learmont, uh, sometimes as far as Pierce uh, in, outside of Perth. Uh, but we'd also operate down to Richmond uh, and Nowra for anti-submarine exercises as well. So most of the time you're flying in quite hot tropical climates. Yes, yes, uh, very hot and very uh, thirsty work actually because we had um, we had our underwear, we had our Nomex flying suits, gloves, flying boots, um, helmets on all the time, uh, parachute harness on. So uh, just sitting in the cockpit was um, was hot and thirsty work. And you were there for many hours at a time. What w- what would have been the longest stretch of a flight that you had? I think the longest I've done would have been down to Singapore, uh, sorry, down to Butterworth. Uh, that ran about 12 hours. But we would we would normally do 10 or 11 hours uh, at a time. Somebody was telling me one of the, I think it was Dave, that the, the rear windows could be opened to let fresh air in for the guys who were way down the back. Is that right? Oh, yes, yes. Well, we only flew around 1,000 feet or 1,500 feet. So um, the windows were open. The airspeed of the aircraft was not uh, huge, so there was a very pleasant airflow going through um, the back of the aircraft. So, at, And I've shown that to people when I've taken them inside the Neptune uh, at QAM as well. Um, mm. And uh, on a hot day, they appreciate a bit of a breeze coming through for sure. Yes, I've been in there. It's an amazing space. And I believe that was where photography was, was uh, performed as well, with cameras with those open windows. Yes, that's correct. Um, uh, you had to have a certain angle, as I remember, because of the exhausts coming off um, the engines. So, uh, But that was where the photography was done. Whereas on the P3 Orion, we'd be taking the photography from the cockpit area. Right. Now, you must have been involved in some search and rescue missions? Yes, several several rescue search and rescue missions of my time, but we were always on standby. We always, always had one aircraft available for search and rescues, right. and uh, that aircraft would be checked every day uh, before it was loaded up with the Lindholm's um, search and rescue equipment, which is uh, two life rafts and some um, other devices attached to that just looking through my book i see yep. there's a search and rescue on swain's reef back on uh, 25th of may 1976 and uh, it says in my logbook that we found the yacht uh, on the reef wow i mean obviously that's not the design purpose of that aircraft but in peacetime 
I'm guessing that was a significant role because what else can do it when the time comes? Well, we were used to all sorts of uh, tasks, uh, Gary, because um, we were versatile. Uh, we could uh, used by Queensland University to count whale numbers uh, when they were in transit on their uh, annual migration. Um, we used to drop uh, stores, uh, food supplies out to the um, meteorology uh, people out at uh, Willis Island. Um, what else did we do? Um, well, coastal surveillance was a primary task for us, uh, but we also trained actively in uh, anti-submarine warfare. Okay. And uh, so it was a good aircraft. It, it was a good platform to, to work in? Uh, yes, I enjoyed it. I, uh, you know, when you're uh, able to to uh, fly, get a fly a big airplane like that by hand, basically, there wasn't too much uh, autopilot usage like an airliner, um, and um, it gave you a real challenge to get the engine started and get off the ground. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I I can only imagine like you had a, a crew of what was it, nine or ten? A uh, total of ten. Yeah, two pilots. Uh, Three navigators and five AOs, airborne electronics officers. And minimum crew would have been uh, four, two pilots, one navigator, uh, and one radio operator uh, to uh, check things down the back of the aeroplane. Right. Now, when you are talking to visitors at the QAM and you're showing them the Neptune and you're describing, you know, the aircraft and what it did... I guess uh, there are people who have all kinds of levels of knowledge and, and experience with different aircraft. Do, is that an interesting experience, talking to visitors? Oh, I love it, uh, Gary, because um, I, I like, you know, even people who are a little um, blasé about the aircraft um, with a bit of encouragement can become quite enthusiastic. And um, being able to take them inside the Neptune particularly, I think, gives them a real window into what things were like the usual thing being that people say how small it is inside and um, i like to remind them that it was designed uh, and flew before the end of the second world war and it was a real war plane um things like the ventura uh, the orion the the new p8 Poseidon, they're all conversions of airliners whereas the neptune was built as a war plane and um, there was very little creature comfort Tell us about the Pandora. Uh, yes, um, it was actually in my logbook. It's the last flight on the Neptune, the 8th of November, 77, in 281. And um, we were tasked, one of our tasks was to see if we could find the Pandora using the magnetic anomaly detector. Uh, we were given a rough position on a reef and uh, we flew over and got a hit with the detector straight away, dropped our smoke boys, and uh, when the divers got there, they found the wreck straight away. And uh, what was a little, a little sad, perhaps, was that um, the people who the divers who uh, discovered it, uh, were awarded a financial reward. But uh, the actual Air Force crew that actually found it uh, didn't get anything. Yeah, that's just that. That is a shame. Well, our listeners are giving you a round of applause now for the kudos, you know, for the uh, expertise involved in that. Um, and uh, so, so the Pandora. What what was the Pandora? Well, the Pandora was a um, HMS Pandora was a ship that uh, was bringing back the prisoners from the mutiny of the Bounty, and ran ran onto the reefs up there in the north. Incredible piece of history. Yeah. 
And uh, one other thing I noticed in my logbook was that uh, one of the last few flights I did, we managed to get to 33,000 feet. Now, the Neptune's normally a low-level aircraft, um, but we must have been must have had something to, something else to do. We took it up to 33,000 feet. And um, I remember the air traffic controllers telling uh, an ANSET and TAA DC-9s coming in that there was a Neptune overhead at 33,000 feet. And I thought somebody might have said, are you kidding? Uh, but no, they, they either weren't listening or didn't care. Well, so, they perhaps didn't realise what that meant. So you were all on bottle oxygen at that point, I guess. Oh, yes, yes. It's, as I said, it was a very unusual thing for us to do. And um, mm. uh, the aeroplane can fly reasonably high but and reasonably fast too with the jets going, but um, it wasn't the normal thing at all. In fact, it took us longer to get down from 33,000 feet than <laughs> climb up because uh, as we came down the cylinder head, temperatures would cool and we'd have to level off let the engines warm up a bit more and then go down again. So, um, and um, it, all I remember was very, very cold. Mm, goodness. And the tasks that it was designed for couldn't be performed at that altitude anyway, could they? So there's not really no, any point. No. Yeah. No, if we were in transit somewhere uh, at, at a reasonable distance, we'd be at around 5,000 feet. Right. Or 160 knots, so it wasn't a particularly fast airplane just on long-range crews, but um, if you had the jets... Uh, on, I remember we were doing um, an exercise with an Indonesian uh, Navy ship and we are pretending to be a cruise missile coming in at 100 feet and uh, we had the jets going as well. So we were doing close to 300 knots, but uh, 300 knots at 100 feet over the water was rather exciting. Actually, uh, it was a great aeroplane to take people um, like uh, other air crew from other squadrons. You take them out for a run over the reef off Townsville at 100 feet. Wow. And see all the fish and the sharks and mm. all that sort of thing. And most people were almost ready to uh, transfer to Neptune's. Wow. Well, look, thank you so much, Morris. Uh, if anybody's interested in meeting up with you or talking about the Neptune with somebody who flew Neptune's, they can find you at QAM on Wednesdays normally. And yes. uh, other other guides there, of course, know lots of different bits and pieces of these history stories as well, but you actually experienced them. So if somebody wants to meet you, they could probably find you there on a Wednesday. Thanks so much for talking to me, Morris. This has been fascinating. Now, we do have another former... RAAF Air Electronics Officer and AEO volunteering at QAM as one of our guides. That's Val Buckmanis and he had some fascinating reflections on his time in Neptune's and Orion's also when he spoke to me in an earlier episode of Mac One. You can hear Val's story in one of the episodes entitled Meet the QAM Guides. As I said in the previous episode, at the time of recording in 2022, it is 60 years since the Neptunes arrived in Australia. That was 1962. And we are currently exploring the possibility of marking the occasion with a small event, maybe it'll be a big event, at QAM sometime later in the year. Keep an eye on the upcoming events information on the Queensland Air Museum website for details. And let us know, leave a comment in the Mac One hangar if you're interested in attending such an event, just so that we can begin to gauge interest. So that's our episode, our first two-parter. 
The Neptune, part one and part two. I hope you've enjoyed this. I certainly did. I have learned so much. So that's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. We've gone a little over time. I apologize for that, and I thank you for your patience. I just, there was so much that was interesting to include. I did cut out all sorts of things, and what you heard, I think, was the best of a very good range of stories and reflections. So this is Gary Hills. This is Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum, Caloundra. Come and visit us. Soon.